Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs by Marguerite Young. And, surprise, surprise, I may have figured out how to add episodes, I tell you this app, it's death of me, um, add segments to the episodes. It doesn't, it just says yes, it's been done. But then I clicked it a couple more times, like, well, where did it go? And then when you back out of it, then the segments appeared. So I was able to, to narrow it down to the first two segments that I needed because of the emergency, uh, national emergency sound that went off. Um, yeah, so I think I figured that out, which will come in handy for when I do the rereading of Ms. McIntosh, My Darling. Um, another, treason, another reason I'm trying to finish this along with the read-along group is because I would like some time off to kind of prepare for that one. So uh, I'll be bringing in all my resources and everything to reread it. And it looks like I can do it in segments, which would be pretty cool because then I could do like, it's still going to go like the, so I can do the chapter and have it before I had to break up the chapters and it had to be like chapter 1.1, 1.2, I had to break it up quite a bit. So I'm hoping with these segments, I can just record different segments and, you know, stopping points without having all these different numbered parts of the chapter. Excuse me. And, um, plus I'm going to be talking and doing commentary throughout. So, they might end up being kind of long. Um, but yeah, I, I, I accidentally figured that out. This app is something else. Okay, we are on page 115, chapter 34. Oh, because there's a new date. This is a little bit longer chapter. And then it's followed by... So now we're kind of like long, short, long, short. Um, oh, because Dalkey put out another date of October, uh, 24th as being the new publishing date for, uh, the new edition of Ms. McIntosh, My Darling. So let's see. I believe it's on there as a pre-order again. I know my pre-order through Amazon was canceled the first time. Because it had, been in, it had been extended so many times. Um, you know, I, I have no idea. I have had no word of, like, this is the real one. So, yeah, so I'm not. I'm not pre-ordering it. I'm just waiting to see when it's actually published. I have it on my, on my, I have the link saved to watch. And let's see if it happens. Uh, chapter 34. It was said of Joseph Smith that the tendency for dreaming had been born in his blood as an inheritance from his ancestral family tree whose members in earlier times have been English and Scottish crusaders and Puritans for whom the Bible was never a complete book, for chapters have been lost or had strayed or had been stolen. And so it might be asked whether they would ever be found, perhaps rooted up from under the roots of a tree by an old hound dog on a celestial mission baying at the moon when he found what he found. Perhaps also Smith's, Smith's dream propensity had been heightened when he, as a little boy with typhus, which threatened the loss of a leg, he refused to have that leg cut off. But without one drop of blood, red wine to lull his senses, and without ropes to tie him down, had sat in his father's arms while the doctor had drilled into the bone on each side of the affected bone, and had lifted out three pieces with a pair of forceps. Ouch! 
I can't imagine. The future prophet of the Mormon church had grown tall and athletic, but had walked with a limping gait, someone like that of a wounded horse, and was given to strange fits, starts, and frothings of the mouth, as were many founders of religions, who, while under the spell of dreams, considering our USDA uh, food guidelines, was from a woman who had a vision that lots of fruits and vegetables would get us closer to God, which is crap, which is a lie. It's totally, yeah, it's a vision. It's a delusion. Um, which may be the only anodyne for an unbearably wounded reality, see the foundations of a new heaven and a new earth, or that which, having been stamped out of man's memory long ago by the passage of time and the conventions of habitual thinking which keep men in one groove, will return. The prophet whose faith was in various aspects of pluralism, not monotheism, once said to the followers of whom he had an ever-increasing flock, I am a rough stone. The sound of the hammer and stone was never heard on me until the Lord took me in hand. I desire the learning and wisdom of heaven alone. But as a matter of fact, and there was fact in the psychedelical landscape, which was that of the inner soul turned into the outer soul, Joseph Smith had desired not only to spiral upward to heaven's gold, but downward to earth's gold, he having been a gold seeker by profession. A seer who, wearing his magical peep stone under his wide-brimmed hat when it was pulled downward over his eyes, had so much magnetic power that with his willow wand pointing in his hand, he could locate buried gold. Once when the digging for a bag of Spanish gold that his insight had told him should be found buried under a tree deep under its roots, he had said that it would be found only by leading a black sheep around it three times with correct magical incantations, and then slaying that obviously unwinged creature and spearing its blood upon the ground. <laughs> Great. No treasure had been discovered, but the black sheep had disappeared, no doubt as one unfit for heaven's fold, and had appeared for the next several days in the form of a sheep's head, lamb chops, lamb stew, with the lamb's eyes floating in at the table of Smith's visionary gold hunter father and visionary mother, who had many children with many mouths to feed at their scrawny little farm near Manchester, to which they had moved because of the breadwinner's inability to make the last payment on a larger farm at Palmyra where they could have raised enough corn to keep a ram and ewe, and many little ewe-leans, doubtless the playful kind, for there was always something very playful about these smiths. Hop-toed Joseph, with his three bones missing, and the spell of his dreams upon him might remind some that his paternal grandfather had been dubbed Twisted Neck Smith, because of the way his head was set on a twisted neck, one shoulder higher than the other, so that with this kind of crooked pipe it was no wonder that the religion which he spouted should have should seem something beyond recognition as that of the Presbyterian Church. Itself a dissenter's faith in things which were not seen, but should be seen, voices which were not heard, but should be heard, by those who believed in the enchanted fairy realms and golden cities under the earth. Joseph Smith had been as much fascinated by the legends of the gold buried by Captain Kidd as by the mines of Solomon. It was on a bright spring morning in the forest near his father's farm that the young man, kneeling in prayer that the light might fall, upon, fall on him, been surrounded by such darkness that his tongue was bound so that he could not speak except in a deep pool of silence to God. He had felt that he was doomed when all of a sudden a pillar of light brighter than the sun had appeared over his head and had descended on him and rested on him, and it was then that he had seen those two angels who were God the Father and his beloved son. The angel, Moroni, some two years later had visited the young hunter of gold candlesticks and gold watches and gold watch chains. He was lying in his bed, perhaps under the spell of imbibing more of the blood-red wine than he should have imbibed. He was visited by a beautiful floating angel who stood in the air and was wearing a long white robe and had naked hands and naked feet and naked legs and a naked head and a naked neck and a naked bosom. 
which could be seen as his robe floated apart and had also a countenance which looked like lightning. The angel was a messenger from God, and his name was Moroni, and, had a, and he had told the 18-year-old boy, who was then coming into his somewhat mutilated manhood, where were his three missing bones hidden, and who would restore them to his limb, that he knew where was deposited a hidden book, which, written on golden plates, told of the former inhabitants of this continent and the place from which they sprang up. Also, that there were two stones and silver bows, and that these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what was called the Urim and the Thummim, and that their possession was what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. He had also been visited with a vision showing where the golden plates and seer stones and silver bows would be found. Once when asked what an angel who was a messenger from the Lord looked like, he had said that the true angel of light was the most handsome man there ever was. With his magnetic sense drawing it to him, as a smaller lodestone might be attracted toward a less larger lodestone, Joseph Smith, although he had not found his secret treasure upon the former rapite stamping ground, which was now cut into farmlands operated by individuals, one of whom was Josiah Stoll. Joseph Smith, that obsessed seeker after the long-lost Indian Bible, which was capable of many transmutations into many forms, and could be a sheep or a dog or a swan, had stolen away with the most precious jewel there that there might be, and who was certainly not a book, but a bride. She was Miss Emma Hale, daughter of the hidebound, well-heeled, tightly-buttoned, upstanding, prosperous, skeptical, skeptical gentleman farmer Isaac Hale, in whose house and economy in a spare room, very spare, the ne'er-do-well gold hunter Joseph Smith had stayed while his gold hunter father did the digging for such illusionary treasures as a silver mine or a slice of the gold melon moon which had fallen to the crust of earth and was marked by tooth marks of little mice stars. Isaac Hale was a firm believer in the dignity of labor by the sweat of one's brow by dropping turnip seeds into holes in preparation for the future. He had refused to encourage or countenance the impunctuousness Joseph Smith's suit for his daughter's long-fingered lily-white hand, which was not stained by dust of coal mine or mill, and hers were also lace veils in plentitude and billowing satins, and satin slippers long-toed as boats. She was worlds above the suitor in a personal and social and economic sense. Joseph Smith had first become the robber bridegroom when he had fled with the love-smitten Emma Hale over the border to New York, where he had not abandoned her in a murky marshland, nor drowned her in a lowly-margined pool, nor left her to find her own way back to her father as a villain might have done, but had married her, in the sight of God, and the manifestation of law, who appeared in the form of the man who tied the knot, and where he had lustily, crowingly placed his little man in her virginal body, that which for a young man who, in spite of his missing bones, suffered from an overplus of vitality, with its divine sparks, and out the witherings of sterility in the desert land where no water was, and must have seemed to him a cave hung with the most refulgent and yet taciturn mysterious jewels, where he had reigned supreme before he was born from immortality into morality, and to which he, like many utopian dreamers, and some who might be simple dreamers, wished to return as to immortality. Brigham Young once described the Book of Mormon as that which told of religion upon which it was difficult to put one's hand on either end, for it was the religion which moved from eternity into time, and out of time into eternity without beginning or end. When he came to believe that all must be baptized in the new and yet very old Mormon faith to be lost, or be lost, he was also convinced that to seek any other way to God was as foolish as to take lessons in painting in a dark forest at midnight.
Although, oh, excuse me. Although, Joseph Smith enroped himself to his forbidden love according to Christian ritual as demanded by law, and she in her voluminous gown had soon swollen big as if she carried the melon moon inside of her, the little boy who came sailing out of his mother's body in approximately nine months had been born dead. Although in order to take possession of the Indian Bible, which was hidden in the cave, the angel Moroni had told the pleasure-loving Joseph Smith, with his battered old tramp's hat and his hair sticking out like corn silk through the holes in his hat, someone who might have made a good scarecrow as he leaned upon a fence post, or as a fence post leaned upon him, turns of this, his discovery that he must go through a probationary period of four years in order to be worthy of a treasure that was of unknown value in any material sense whatever at that time, and that he must have a wife and a male son of whom he would be the father as the son would be in his image. The fact that the little son had been among the thousands of stillborn births occurring in America at that prodigal time had not been held against him. He had been told to avoid wine and beer and cigars in order to purify himself for the coming gift of the golden plates, which were hidden away in the cave in the hill of Camorra, where he had first seen the holy, true, long-concealed word of God, which should be written in foreign tongues beyond the poor lad's comprehension at that time. The two stones in silver bows, which were fastened to a breastplate and went by the name Urim and Thummim, and constituted the most magical, most mysterious, most omniscient seer's stones, which would enable him to translate ancient hieroglyphics into the English language, or more strictly speaking, the American tongue, its mutilated mutation. Kumora, C-U-M-O-R-A-H. Huh. I have no idea if that's a real place or not. I'll have to look into it. During the four probationary years in which Joseph Smith had waited for the golden plates that should be found in the cave of which the door was concealed by a large stone, he had been forbidden entrance by characters who might not seem representatives of God's word. The guardsmen, including a lowly toad and a dwarf and a thug, all subjected to the metamorphosis taking place in the memory of a young man who was given over to the dream of connecting the broken arches of ancient rainbows so that there would be bridges with pots of gold for either end. The last of these characters had been a living dead man, a mysterious Spaniard, with a long beard like moss hanging from his chin to his waistline, his throat slashed from ear to ear, and the blood running from his wounds and the sockets of his eyes, although he might have perished or disappeared some time ago. There were those who believed that Joseph Smith's encounter with the mysterious Spaniard had been inspired by his fascination with the adventures of Captain Kidd, who had been employed to protect colonial ships plying the coast driven by gales into Spanish waters, through which, had he been gifted with double vision, he might have seen the sunken temple of the lost Atlantis. But who, a law upholder in pursuit of pirates and their galleons, waylaying ships carrying gold and other treasure for burial, had not turned his eyes downward to see what lost sun and moon gods might be underwater. No one knew precisely where Captain Kidd's treasure was buried. Some people think that it might be at, Gardner, at Gardner's Island, others that it might be found under the mud and sand of a southern coastal inland, others that it might be that might go by tidal water almost anywhere. Captain Kidd had lost his pleas for his life, just like a simple watch or snuff thief, but was strung up on the hangman's tree at the executioner's wharf of the Port of London as a warning to all sailors going out to sea that they who heard the clanking of the clankings of the captain's chains as the crows pecked out his eyes and heard the cryings of the sea winds should be honest men, lest they themselves should be hanged, like this former upholder of the law who showed what a poor puppet thing life was for those who became, 
who came pirates of other men's gold. Captain Kidd, although protesting his innocence until the end, had also been condemned for murders of drugged men in the hold. <clears throat> All right, it's gone a little bit smoother there. <sighs> All right. Thank you for listening. Hope you're enjoying the read-along. Hope you are doing well wherever you are. Bye.